get, hey, you you know what we should talk about here at the top of the show? What? We should talk about the the tragedy that befell us the last time we tried to talk about this book. Oh, so yeah, it's a wonderful tragedy. <laughs> Um, I mean, n- nothing much. We just you know, lost the audio. Yeah. yeah, but 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 you you were talking so eloquently about the book before before it all came crashing down, and I I can still recall the look on your face uh-huh. as I, I was I was starting to say something, and you said, "John, John." It was a nightmare. So uh, we were we got well into the episode before I realized that my recorder had stopped recording. Uh, because it had run out of uh, space on its uh, SD card, which was uh, unanticipated and unpleasant—an unpleasant thing to discover—and uh, I was I was rather upset. It had stopped recording early on as well. It was it was not something that I was prepared for, so we lost it. And then I and then John said, uh, "Should we just start over?" And I said, "You know what? I just need to go mourn this for a little while." <laughs> And then we lost uh, all ability to actually get back together for a good solid few weeks. We we are quite aware, dear listeners, that it has been a long time since uh, our last episode. But I think the dear listeners should also be aware that we are nearing the end of this book series, and uh, we are we are just trying to portion out the remaining uh, the remaining scraps for for you, dear listeners. We know that you don't want it to end. So we're allowing it to breathe and take its time. Uh, but unfortunately, that meant we left you with Muggy Maggie for the last two months, I guess. Unless you were a subscriber. Oh, yes. Unless you're a subscriber. That's a good That's a good plug for uh, becoming a subscriber and, and listening to the super secret episode, which mm-hmm. was on, well, I can't say because it's a secret, but it was about the Ramona TV series. Yes, you missed a great episode. Uh, and if you are a subscriber, thank you so much for supporting uh, the Incomparable Network. What is the what is the book this time? It's Strider. Right. And as I recall, you did a very heartfelt reading of the opening of Strider. Would you like to do that again? I would love to do it again. Oops, I just opened the Wheelchair Commando by Stan and Jan Berenstain. Oops, I just did it accidentally again. I hate this desktop <laughs> app. From the Diary of Lee Botts, June 6th. This afternoon, as mom was leaving for work at the hospital, she said for the millionth time, Lee, please clean up your room. There's no excuse for such a mess, and don't forget the junk under your bed. I said, Mom, you're nagging. I'm going to Barry's house. She plunked a kiss on my hair and said, Room first, Barry second. Besides, where would the world be without nagging mothers? Everything would go to pieces. Maybe she's right. Things are pretty deep in my room. I hauled all the rubbish out from under my bed. In the midst of all the old socks, school papers, models that have fallen apart, paperback books, one library book, oops, and other stuff, I found the diary I kept a couple of years ago when I was a mixed-up kid in the sixth grade. Mom had just divorced Dad and moved with me to Pacific Grove, better known as PG, where I was a new kid in school, which wasn't easy. I sat there on the floor reading my diary, and when I had finished, I continued to sit there. What had changed? We should, we should do the introduction, shouldn't we? Yes, if it, in the, in t- <laughs> so, lest we forget about it. <laughs> so, hi, I'm John. I'm Phil. And this is Clickacast, a Beverly Clary podcast. So, that was the, the beginning. That was the beginning. <laughs> Uh, so this is the second uh, uh, Lee Bots book. 
Yes, the second, the other Leebots book. The I other Leebots. As you pointed out last time, if you if you look at this book on Amazon, they they tout it as being in the Leebots series. Yes, Leebots book two, as if it is like the middle of like the three body problem series or something. It's like no, it's pretty much just Dear Mister Henshaw and Strider. It's two parts. This is sadly at at the near the very end of Cleary's uh, career. And what an amazing book to come at the end uh, of, of a career. It really is. Uh, it's not only like the uh, a great cap on this brief series, it's a great cap on the very concept of writing about writing and coming full circle with her characters and her development as a writer. It's just, it's it's an incredible book all around. You pointed out last time that this is basically the same story as the original Henry Huggins book. It's a story right. about a boy at a kind of a moment in his in his childhood where he needs a change, finding a, a lost dog, and how that changes him. But it's so completely different in style and effect and just the the, the literary devices used in this. Mm-hmm. Um, when you, we, we were talking about the original Henry Huggins books, one of the things that struck us was that they had these really super long chapters, and each of those chapters was kind of its own little O. Henry story, by which right. I mean stories that were tightly plotted, and usually there was some sort of a twist at the end where something would pay off narratively that had been set up as a as a device oh you didn't mean that they they made you go oh henry at the end of each chapter <laughs> yeah yes no that that, that, that too but um <laughs> but in the case of of uh strider uh and this was also uh, something i brought up in the in the lost audio th- it was like reading a raymond carver story there was like right th- these stories about slice of life about quirky characters having these these momentary you know everything was ex- extremely organic you mention all these uh tiny little chapters some of these chapters are like two paragraphs long that's yeah. nothing that clary would have done uh, at the beginning of her career Right, because I mean, as we as we briefly mentioned, uh, this is this this is the follow up book to Dear Mr. Henshaw. So the the main character is the same. It's told in the same uh, diary format. Uh, he's no he only mentions Boyd Henshaw like once or twice in the whole book. He's like, oh yeah, that like author I used to think about like and and that's what one of the things that's so that's so starkly uh, poignant about this book is he is briefly looks back on the stuff he wrote in the first book and barely remembers it. Right. Like that was a profound experience for him and for us as readers, but he is at the age where he wouldn't retain most of that. And if he hadn't written it all down, he probably wouldn't have remembered that most of it even happened. Yeah, no, this, this takes place two years later and it's, it's like one of those, those sequels where they 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 just dispose, you know, like at the beginning of of Aliens Three, when they just unceremoniously just dispose with the characters you'd fallen in love with in the in 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 two. I mean, the book doesn't start with like his parents dead or anything. <laughs> well, he doesn't shave his head and go to live with a bunch of prisoners. <laughs> but otherwise, it's exactly like Alien Three, <laughs> just like Alien Three. It's the Alien Three of the of the Beverly Cleary uh, uh, series. It's a uh... It's it's her it's her David Fincher movie. 
<laughs> no, I get what you're saying. Like it, it, it quickly jettisons a lot of the stuff you would expect her to hold on to, but it does it in a way that, well, especially as a parent, I am all too aware is how children function, which is they don't carry the same the same feelings about their early childhood that parents do because they don't remember it very well. Uh, only the people who are observing it and able to retain it are the ones who think on it like almost romantically. And Lee is like, oh, yeah, I was a messed up kid. That was a weird time in my life. Right. Well, uh, and and he, he's, he's still messed up. He's just messed up in different ways now. Um, we've commented many times on the way that Cleary was a pioneer about writing about families in crisis in a way that felt very mm-hmm. real. And he, Lee is going through so much crisis right now. He's going through extreme um, you know, economic insecurity in the family. His father is losing his truck in this uh, story. Yeah. Um, his his mother is still just barely making it by, and and Lee is sort of adrift at school. He doesn't really have good friends. He has one friend, and right, he has one, he has one very good right. friend. Uh, and and I think that Cleary does a good job at balancing Lee's. Uh, like the 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 angst in his life, with the good things, he's still a generally upbeat kid. Uh, he appreciates his friend. They they spend quality time together. Uh, he understands that his mom works very hard. She's gotten her. Uh, she's a nurse now, isn't she? Is that's a. Uh, she's now officially working uh, in the medical in the medical field, and uh, and he is now sweeping floors at the catering company where she used to work. Uh, and there's like, and she, she clearly, uh, this goes back to what you said about the Raymond Carver thing. It clearly peppers it with these eccentric characters who in a less deft hand would come across as comical or, or weird or, you know, overly colorful. But there's like a, there's like a, a, a man who lives out of his truck on the beach who they call the president of the United States. And because he's always saying, if I ran the country and in, in, a lesser author's hands, that character would become uh, a goofy character or even a sinister character. But here he's just another member of the community, another person who lives in the neighborhood and who encourages them to take in the stray dog they find and says one of the most brilliant things in the book, which is my opinion, which is basically like if I ran the country, I'd like hang everyone, anyone who ever abandoned a pet. <laughs> and I was like, right on, Mr. Mr. President. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, yeah. So they, they find this dog on the beach. Lee's mom immediately recognized as a Queensland healer. I, I had no idea that mm-hmm. this type of a dog existed. I, 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 I guess I'm not as much of a dog person as, as I thought I was. Were you aware of this breed? What I don't know about dogs could fill more books than Beverly Cleary ever wrote. Like, uh, I, I think it's funny that you're like, I had no idea that a Queensland healer was a thing. I'm like, I don't think that means you don't know a lot about dogs, John. <laughs> like, I don't think it's, I don't think you're required to know every single breed. Uh, but no, I had never heard of a Queensland healer. Is a they are they are uh, 
uh, interesting looking dogs. I mean, they're beautiful dogs, but they are, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They are unique looking. Like I can see where if you knew what one was, you would recognize this dog. Right. Well, they're, they're Australian and they're uh, herding dogs. So his mom says she'd seen one herding animals once. So I guess that's the explanation. Anyway, <laughs> this is Strider. This is who he names. Why does he name it Strider? He names it after like the the sports team. Uh, yeah, I just I just reread that part. It's uh, he names it Strider. I don't remember why he names it Strider. <laughs> Hold on, you you brought it up. Now I have to. No. He names it Strider, and then and then his friend Barry is like, yeah, Strider, and I don't know. Let's skip this yeah. part. Cut this part. Cut it out. <laughs> cut, cut, cut this. Well, he na- obviously he names it Strider at, because he's a big Lord of the Rings fan. Yeah, but, right, right. Beverly Cleary was making just another Lord of the Rings reference out of all of her Lord of the Rings references. <laughs> Barry and Lee both would like to have the dog. Both of them have found the dog. So they hit upon this uh, this agreement that they are going to have joint custody of the dog. It bespeaks uh, Lee's preoccupation with his parents' divorce. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it's a, it's an interesting, it, 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 it rings very true to me because this is one of the things that kids do is they find ways to, uh, work out things outside of their control into the things that they can control. Yes. And it's a very Henry Huggins, uh, quality as well. And I think that's another reason I keep bringing Henry Huggins, Henry Huggins was famous for kind of working out his own problems, uh, finding these kind of like insurmountable uh, obstacles in his life, and then come heck or high water, figuring out how to get around them and getting what he wanted. And Lee Botts is kind of the same way. Uh, he knows what he wants, and he has very little in his life, so he's going to he's going to figure out how to get it. And I think what Cleary does really well in this book is is frame Lee's life so you understand more why he is that way as opposed to Henry Huggins who's just like an energetic young boy there's so much that has changed uh over the I guess it's been 30 years since oh, Henry yeah. Huggins Chariots of Fire had come out <laughs> and that ended up being a major influence on this book I'm going to assume <laughs> yeah no this book um this book has a lot of track and field in it uh, which is a little bit um, a little bit traumatizing to me. I was a, a, a track and field kid, and it was it, it, it is the most boring of the intramural sports. I, I remember as a teenager uh, when I would go to to, to track meets and uh, my, my, my long suffering parents would come along to cheer me on <laughs> and I would say, "Why are you here?" <laughs> I mean, I know why I'm here. I have no idea why you're here, but uh, all I all I knew about track is that our track, the track coach at my high school, uh, the first day of track, when all the kids would come to try out for track, uh, he would he would make you run until you threw up. That was the first day of track. My friend Rob tried out, and he was like, "We had to run until we threw up," and I was like, "Why? What? Why are you doing it?" And he's like, "I love track." I was like, "All right, all right, dude, go for it." People did throw up from track, but it wasn't anything. People would uh, my my coach would never uh, see that as something desirable. I think it's the way he like tried to weed out like the weak. 
Like, I think that's how he chose. I don't know anything about track. I guess all I knew is that one thing that my friend Rob told me. (laughs) Well, Lee Botts loves track. Well, okay. So (laughs) Lee and Barry find this dog, and they decide to split custody, which makes sense to Lee because he understands splitting custody. In fact, all of his friends understand splitting custody because every kid in this book has divorced parents. Yeah. This is like the land of the divorced parents. Uh, in fact, when a when a character finally shows up who lives with both of her parents, it's worth mention. Like he he says, like she lives with both of her parents! Exclamation point. Uh, and there's a lot of things in this book that could have ended up very sitcommy or very uh, like uh, like wacky or incidenty. Uh, he has a their landlady uh, has a strict no dogs policy, so they have to. Whenever Strider is living with Lee, they have to find out ways to hide Strider, and she's kind of the nosy landlord, but that never becomes comedy. Uh, it always sort of stays this vague threat in the background until the revelation at the end, where, of course, the landlady has always known that Lee has been hiding this dog in the house, and she's actually fine with it. Like she actually, It's kind of this like little sweet little bonding moment between her and Lee. Uh, and... Through the course of the book, like Lee, there's like a rich kid who bullies Lee, but they end up becoming friends. Uh, he gets a crush on a girl, a redheaded girl who he sees trying out for track and kind of like like admires her from afar, but they slowly grow together. There's a lot of stuff that happens in this book. Uh, this is a story about growing up slowly um, and starting in a kind of a rough place in Lee's life and how things get better uh, for Lee over the course of the year, partly through this relationship with, with, with Strider. Although, interestingly enough, Strider is not the oversized character that Ribsy was. No. Strider, Strider's just a dog, and, and he's a dog that likes to run with Lee. We don't get much into Strider's head, and that's interesting to me because this book is called Strider, Right, but it's it's really it, it it's all Lee's story, and Strider's just one aspect of that story. The 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 track is the other aspect, his his relationship with his friends, this burgeoning crush with this young woman Geneva. It's it's not like there's any moment in the in the book where things get better for Lee. It's that things change. Right. Well, I would say that Strider is a catalyst for the all the action in the book. Like because they find Strider and Strider's a, a herding dog, they have to run a lot because Strider needs that exercise. And the running becomes a ritual for him and his friend. When his friend Barry goes out of town to be with his mother or his father, one of the two, uh Lee ends up continuing to run with Strider, and that's what gets him, makes him realize that he's he loves to run and get involved with track. Like, there's all these little pieces that come together, but not in a contrived way. Just like this, just happens to be the way his life went. The other thing I I, I really want to point out is there's there's so many really great little moments. There's a moment, you know, uh, when. Uh, Lee's father's girlfriend shows up and kind of checks out Lee to see how uh, how Lee's doing and it's this it's this awkward moment of okay here's this new woman in my life and and, and it yeah. it's not it's not played for laughs it's not played you know too big it's just given the 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 time it needs to um to breathe 
there's also one point that I found absolutely hilarious when I was reading it, where uh, when Lee is is talking to his dad, and his dad asks, "Does your mom have any male friends right now?" And Lee says he's not going to say anything about it. And he says, uh, "I'm not going to tell him about Bob from the hospital, who sometimes jogs with her and stops by for breakfast." <laughs> <laughs> and I did a double take at that. I was like, "Clary, are, are you are you really implying what you what I think you're implying here?" Because I think so. I think she. But it, I think she. You know that that that. But that's um, the things have changed. You know since since Henry yes. Huggins, and uh, it's it's a uh, just a it's a much. Uh, more lived-in world, this world of of Strider. It's a much more sympathetic world, uh, uh, partly because of just Lee's older, but also because of just the way Cleary insists on uh, letting everyone kind of have their say in this book. Uh, No one is malicious in this book, but everyone is extraordinarily flawed. Uh, everyone is hurt and or damaged in some way or another uh, just by the circumstances of their lives and they make mistakes because of those circumstances and Cleary never expects us to excuse people for their for their mistakes or their small cruelties but she insists that we at least get their perspective on things and so that allows us like uh the kid who is initially a bully, Kevin, uh, we get to know why he behaves that way and what his life is like, the loneliness that he experiences because he's because he's rich and uh, and his parents ignore him. And even though he has everything in the world, he doesn't have a great childhood. And uh, uh, the why the, you know, the landlady gets her say and even the father uh, for as neglectful and weird as he is like you get at least to find out that he is struggling financially, uh, he is struggling personally, he's uh, a little bit of a broken, uh, like almost, I, won't, I don't want to say like a, like he's not a shell of a man, but he's, uh, he's very worn down by his circumstances and by life. And uh, Lee is now at an age where he can start empathizing with people and she, she does it so well. And this is a short book. This is like an hour read at like, like you can sit down on the couch and read the whole thing, like cover to cover, uh, before yeah. dinner, and she manages to do all of this without it ever feeling rushed or crammed. And I think it's because of that diary style. You're only getting the highlights. You're only getting what's important, because it's supposed to be this boy writing it all down. Yeah, I want to. I want to point out one thing here because this is a a, a, a fetish of mine is noting when. People read books inside books. I always find that a fascinating move, and I, I always wonder what the author is on about. There's a point um, on the day that Lee actually meets Geneva. He goes to a, a thrift shop, and he makes two purchases. He purchases this funny 
funky shirt <laughs> that is kind of a, like a hippie shirt that but at this point must be like 15 years old or something like that. It's very flamboyant. It's, it's a big deal that he wears this shirt because it's sort of him asserting himself and taking up space and, and being noticeable. But he also buys a copy of William Soroyan's The Human Comedy. Right. And I, I find that very strange because... Um, I had to read the human comedy in 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 sophomore lit, and uh, someday on my podcast, if I can get someone to do it with me, <laughs> I will probably do the human comedy because I have not read that book uh, in thirty five years. I don't know how long, uh, but it's not a book that I can credibly picture a kid picking up. Um, do you know this book, The Human Comedy? I know William Soroyan, but I've never read The Human Comedy. Yeah, this is this... I mean, there, there, there are interesting parallels here. The, 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 the Human Comedy is set in, um, in a town called Ithaca, uh, California, which is really modeled after Fresno. And this, and this story, Strider, takes place in North California. This is another one of Cleary's California books. Um, and it's about like a, a a huge cast of characters living sort of their their inter, interlocking lives uh, during World War II and I, I it's 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 vaguely based on allusions to the Odyssey there's characters in there named Homer and Ulysses uh-huh. uh, I, I I just don't you know I, and I don't remember much more than that but I just don't see um, <laughs> I don't see a teenager just like oh here's a book I want to read well, for those of you who might be interested in it, apparently there was a movie based on it in 2015 directed by Meg Ryan. Oh, my God. With Sam Shepard, Tom Hanks, Jack Quaid, Meg Ryan herself. It's like her only film like directing credit, and it's based on the human comedy. It's called Ithaca. Uh, oh, my God. A cast of a cast of dozens, at least. Uh, <laughs> so if you're interested in Meg Ryan's... Uh, brief uh, directing career. It has a 13% on Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) Um, John Mellencamp wrote the score, so it's low. The the sky was dark for all the stars were in Ithaca. (laughs) I mean, there's also a point in this book where... um where Lee Botts quote offense my kingdom for offense. Yeah. He also talks about the rhyme of the ancient mariner quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, with the beginning of the book we're told he doesn't he's not necessarily interested in writing anymore, but obviously he's writing and he right. must be reading a lot. Yeah. And and it must be sticking in a way that's a little unusual for a kid this age. Well, you mentioned the shirt and uh there's there's a drawing of the shirt. Uh one of the illustrations is the shirt. Um you said it was probably fifteen, but it couldn't have been fifteen years old because it was a used shirt from the from the rich kid from Kevin. Oh right, it's right. a shirt that Kevin had owned and that his mom got rid of, and Kevin was upset about it because then Kevin sees Lee wearing it, and that's why he initially begins picking on him and threatening him because he wants his shirt back, and uh, begins chasing him every day at school. Uh, to get the shirt. And it's very reminiscent of when Ramona would chase Davy around the playground. And I think Ramona the Pest. Oh, right. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's a very similar, like, dynamic between these two characters. Like, it be- because it becomes not so much about fighting after a while, just it becomes a thing they do every day. This, like, this little, like, ritualistic chase 
to school. And it's, of course, one of the ways that Lee becomes faster as a runner. But uh, and then eventually becomes friends with becomes friends with Kevin. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a nutty shirt. And uh, I can't believe you haven't pointed out the illustrations yet. The one thing that's good about this book, if if you um, if you get it, it actually still has the Zelensky illustrations in it. And this was not a book that got re-illustrated. No. And you can still get even if you buy the the Kindle version today, it has those Zelensky illustrations, and they're they're really gorgeous. There's a one um, illustration that I I actually just highlighted the illustration when I was looking through that's of a beautiful Victorian house where they're standing outside of and I was thinking to myself this is exactly I, I know exactly this style of house from um, from uh, you know like the San Francisco region this is this, it, it, there was a, there was a similar picture in the original illustrations to um, socks which took place in San Francisco ah. um, and and I, I don't know it, it the, this whole I, Zelensky's illustrations are very redolent of the place and the time. Yeah. They actually feel a little—they feel a little earlier to me. Actually, I mean, this is this book came out in '91. They—they look the the illustrations kind of have a style that seems more like a late '70s, early '80s style. Well, but when did Dear Mr. Henshaw come out? Early '80s, right? That was like '80. That was uh, 85. 85. And so this book is supposed to be set in no, the No, wait, 83, sorry. Okay, so this book is set in 85, and I think he does a good job at making this book look like it was set in 85. From the from the bicycle that he sees uh, 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 Geneva pedaling to the style of the trucks, I think they do a good job at making this book look like it was written when it's set. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, these are these are it's a nice it's a nice looking book. It's well it's well illustrated. And the uh title is set in Mistral, which is a brush script from the from the fifties, but it was very, very popular in the in the eighties. Ah, well see there you go. So, there you go. They knew what they were doing. Exactly. Uh, Paul you, you uh when we recorded before you had you had mentioned some uh Paul Zelinsky stuff, hadn't you? Oh, um yeah. I mean he's He's an interesting guy. He he won the Caldecott for um, what was it, Rapunzel? Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you if you see his his picture um, books, which are what he's most celebrated for, they those are done uh, in in they're they're painted and they're 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 very lovely and they're very detailed. The the illustrations he does here for for Strider and for Dear Mister Hinshaw are. Um, are, are graphite and they're they're they're, they're very sketchy and but but they're, they're 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 lovely and they and they really um you know it's 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 nice to see cleary once again paired up with a a, a really great uh illustrator and obviously not an up and comer because he did go on to win the caldecott oh yes uh and i i do want to uh plug he did a, a children's book adaptation of one of the uh all of a kind family stories uh, a picture book adaptation called All of a Kind Family Hanukkah. And uh, this is completely off the subject, but uh, if any of the listeners uh, are looking for a fantastic uh, children's book, chapter book series uh, for your kids, The All of a Kind Family, it's about a Jewish family uh, living in the early 20th century in uh, in New York City. And 
it's just it's very slice of life. If you are the kind of person who loves uh, historical children's fiction, you could do far worse than all of a kind family series. Read it. Uh, go to your local library today and see if they have a copy, most likely in the stacks, because I don't know how much it was reprinted uh, after like the 19, like eighties. <laughs> uh, but back to Strider. Uh, so the, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's easy to talk about the incident in this book, but so much of it is, is Lee's writing style and excuse me. And how good Cleary is at, like she did in the first book, developing Lee's writing as it goes along. But in this book, it's so much more subtle because he's already a pretty strong writer. Uh, and it doesn't come up as a subject much. But when it does, you really begin to realize that Cleary is making a point about not only... Lee's development as a writer, but her own development as a writer. Yeah. No, you mentioned you had that point. You why don't you make that point again about the about the end of the book? The, yes. So uh, the book it all culminates in the big uh, like track meet, and Lee's dad is back in town with his girlfriend, and his mom is there, and all the characters in the book are kind of just there at this track meet, as you said, have said. Why? Why would you want to do this? But uh, <laughs> they're all there, and uh, Strider runs out onto the track at the end, and you know Lee does pretty well at the track meet. Strider runs out onto the track, and uh, he's he's talking about. Um, his track teacher, I mean, there's a lot going, like a lot goes on at the end of this book. Like all these like plot threads come together. Um, so Mr. Drexler, uh, God, who was Mr. Drexler? Was his, uh, his writing to his English teacher? Uh, I think so. Uh, let me just, I just want to get this right. Um, uh, Mr. Drexler. Yes. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> so Mr. Drexler is his, is his English teacher and he's constantly trying to get, he know he recognizes that Lee is a, is a strong writer and he's sort of always hovering around Lee, like encouraging him to do better, encouraging him to, uh, like exercise his writing skills. And, uh, and at the very end of the book, uh, after having you know like having been dropped little bits of writing advice all throughout the book by Mr. Drexler, and uh, a few moments here or there mentioning uh, Boyd Henshaw, uh, Lee wins the uh, or he doesn't win the track meet. He just does very well at the track meet, uh, and they make the point. This is what it was. They make the point that Lee's not competing against the other students. He's trying to beat his own time. He simply he's realized that his his goal is to simply constantly improve as a person. And at the very end, he takes Strider's face in his hands, looks him in the eye, and says, "Strider, you truly are a noble beast," which is a recurring thing throughout the book. And then he says in the narration, he says, "Sorry, Mr. Drexler. Sometimes adjectives and adverbs are needed to say what I mean." But in my future, if I become a writer, I'll try to keep the fat out of my prose. And to me, reading that, first of all, it really choked me up the first time. Like when I read it, 
Uh, because I don't know if I mentioned this, this was my first experience with this book. Like this book was well past my Beverly Cleary reading years. I missed Strider. I would always forget that it even existed. And I got a little choked up because it was, it's, it was so much Beverly Cleary turning to the audience at the end and commenting on her own writing and commenting on how far she's come as a writer uh, whether she intended to or not, it's impossible to miss. And it was at that point that I realized that she had come full circle from Henry Huggins, that she had begun her career with a book about a boy and his dog, and she had essentially ended her career about a book with a book about a boy and his dog and like turned to the reader at the end and like laid down her pen. She picked her pen back up. Uh, soon after this with the final Ramona book. But as I've said before, that's kind of a weird little coda on her writing career. Um, And I just found the entire book as a whole, but also the entire book and its place in her, in her, the history of her writing to be so just perfect and just slot right in at the end. Yeah, no, definitely. It's it's a beautiful ending, and it's it's a remarkable um, passage uh, because a lot of this book has been about demonstrating Lee's Lee's growth as a person, but and now Lee's growth uh, as a wordsmith. And there 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 are some interesting. You know, we we talk about how at the beginning. Uh, Lee sort of chucks a lot of the earlier book out. You know, he check what he's chucking out is the whole conceit of writing to Mr. Henshaw. There, there, there's not, there's none of that happens in, in this in this book at all. Um, but but there are these moments where you get to kind of gauge what's happening, and one of the things that happens is as the uh, the young love the 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 spring romance between him and Geneva emerges. He takes her to the, the, the place where the monarch butterflies uh, were in the first book. And we have this moment of like, Oh, here's a parallel. And he's able to construct, uh, you know, a, a, a an imagery a metaphor from the butterflies to, uh, to Geneva's hair. It's an interesting point because it's a, it's a, it's a simple, but but beautiful metaphor, but it also kind of shows him moving from, uh, you know, childhood to the first stirrings of romantic love. And that's kind of lovely too. Yeah. Th- those kinds of poetic moments don't come often in, in Cleary's work. She isn't actually a person who goes in much for imagery. Um, but when she does let herself do it, it's, it's quite memorable. There's like a, a sequence in one of the Ramona books where she talks there was the basis for those statues that are in the, um, the, the that are in the, the Seattle Library, where they they dis- describe how Ramona wants to give herself a hug, or how Ramona is so angry, and and those moments where she lets she lets the prose out, she's very very those are very very strong, and it's that restraint that 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 makes those moments very strong. She's a, she is actually an extremely restrained writer. We've mentioned this before, mm-hmm. but but she also knows when to um, she also knows when to to get to give an ad- adjective. She does, and uh, I do want to go back and correct what I said. Uh, 
uh, because this, the, I, this, my memory was confused and, uh, what makes this ending even more poignant. And this is what I forgot about was that Lee writes a composition about what happens at the track meet. Oh, right. Turns it in. And Mr. Drexler is like, that's a amazing composition, but I was at the track meet and you won the race, but you wrote that you lost the race and you should have, you know, written about, you know, like, you, you're allowed to be proud of the fact that you won. And Lee was like, yeah, but I'm running to beat my own time. And that's the most important thing. Winning isn't the important thing to me, but beating my own time was. So you said the composition had to be based on personal experience, but you didn't say it had to be true. And that to me is the crux of Beverly Cleary's entire career. Her, all of her writing is based on her personal experience. They're not true stories, but they're based on her life. And that's like a little, like a Beverly Cleary thesis statement right there. Like write based on personal experience. Don't write what, you don't have to write what happened, but everything has to be honest and come from an honest place. And that, and then, and then after he says that it flashes back to what really happened at the track meet. And that's when we get everything kind of tied up, not neatly in a bow, but satisfactorily for the end of a book. And that was when I was just like, this is, this is just genius. This is just a great book for Beverly Cleary. It's, it's so gratifying to have taken this long trip reading through Cleary's works to see her arrive at such a, a towering command of what she's doing. I, th- I feel like as I was reading this book through, on the one hand, I was, <coughs> I was amazed by how messy she let the, these people's lives become and how organic she let the, the storyline feel uh, and the plotting feel only to arrive at this absolute unity of theme yeah. and style. Uh-huh. And and that's just, you know, amazing. And, and as you said, for such a short book yeah, and a book aimed at middle readers, uh, just a, a, an incredible achievement. Yeah, just amazing. I mean, I can't, there's so much that we're not touching on here like the themes i mean even in how short it was the themes of separation and abandonment how like strider as a as just almost a non-character like exemplifies the feelings of being a child of divorce and how lee has to give the dog up at one point and tries to like separate himself from his feelings for strider but it's really about his feelings for his friend uh, like all these different, like very complicated interactions that she just weaves in and out of this whole book. There are books written for kids. I've mentioned this before. I always call problem books the books that, that like here's how you deal with this life event. And like here's, here's a book where the main characters deal with divorce. Here's a book where the main characters deal with the death of a family member. Here's a story where the kids deal with moving to a new place and. One of the remarkable things about this book is it's about the continuing 
changes that came about because of the divorce. Yeah. And, and, and those changes, there's not a point where you suddenly like, Oh, now we're all better. We've, we've fixed that, you know, like now, now we can get on with our lives. It's about living with this new situation and finding the way that you, you fit into that new situation. As you say, that is the one, that is the one defining characteristic of Strider is he does not want to be left alone. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, what Lee is finding out in this book too is that he doesn't want to be left alone and he's uh and he's widening his social circle, he's widening his life experiences, and he's widening uh, certainly his ability as a writer. You know, I had a talk uh just today with my older child who is seventeen and is graduating from high school and is about to embark on college and life and uh one of the things they said to me was they were just like i'm they said life is hard (laughs) they were like it's just it's life is just hard and they were talking about right now like the moment but also this sort of dawning realization that things are getting more complicated like things are getting complicated beyond what you thought they were going to be and uh, and I said, you know, like it does, and it never stop. Like it doesn't stop. Like don't think you're gonna get like a, a break from at some point because it keeps being hard. And the like, what what you learn to do is you just learn to like you start to try to learn to ride that wave, like and and find the times when things are maybe a little less difficult and enjoy them, and surround yourself with with friends and people who are there to support you because that's that's part of growing up. And I think that Strider and the Lee Bots series and even Ramona, uh, the, the, the stories that Beverly Cleary is the, the ones that really stand out are the ones where the characters learn that there's no easy answers. There's no end to any of this. Like you solve one problem, another one's going to crop up. The important thing is to is to you know solve what you can, work on what you can, but also maintain these friendships, uh, keep growing, keep learning, keep creating, and uh, and you'll find joy in what you do eventually, and you'll find heartache and pain and loss and uh, anger and sadness, and that's all fine. That's all part of the that's all part of the living like element of it. But there's also a lot of uh, exhilaration and joy and satisfaction and and just wonderful things in life and i think that cleary is so good at writing books uh to that point wow so we we've made it to the end of 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 the Leeboth series and and, <laughs> yep. and next time <laughs> next time we will examine the the strange coda that is uh ramona's world ramona's world uh, but, oh my god what are we going to do when we finish this series Oh, I'm sure that there's other something out there. She's got a few storybooks we haven't covered. The Great Big Hole or whatever. (laughs) Okay. Well, anyway, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) 